This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, I'm Armand Gildas and I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of Anthropology at Harvard and this is the first ever podcast episode I'm hosting. I recently became a podcast host for the Anthropology Channel of the New, Bo- New Books Network and have the great honor of hosting Katharina Galore and Syed Achan for, this wonderful, for their wonderful book, The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israelis, Palestin- Palestinians, published in t- 2020 by Duke University Press. And before we start our conversation, which I'm looking forward to, let me introduce Kati and Said. Katharina Galore is an art historian and archaeologist specializing in the visual and uh, material culture of Israel-Palestine. She is currently the Hirschfeld's senior lecturer in Judaic studies at Brown University. She has also taught at the Hebrew University, the École Biblique et Archéologique Française uh, in Jerusalem, at Tufts University and Rhode Island School of Design in the U.S., and most recently at Humboldt University in Berlin. Her publications include The Archaeology of Jerusalem, From the Origins to the Ottomans, co-authored with Hans-Wolf Blödhorn, which came out in 2013 from Yale University Press, and Finding Jerusalem, Archaeology, Archaeology Between Science and Ideology, that was published in 2017 by the University of California Press. Uh, she is currently at work on Jewish Women, Portraits of Conformity and Agency, a project supported by a grant from the Leo Back Institute Berlin. Said Achan is an acting associate professor at anthropology at, uh, of anthropology at Emory University and associate professor of peace and conflict studies at Swarthmore College. He previously served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Watson Institute for International Studies at Brown University. He earned a joint PhD in Anthropology and Middle Eastern Studies and an MA in Social Anthropology from Harvard University and a Master's in Public Policy degree from the Kennedy uh, Kennedy School, Harvard. He received his BA from Swarthmore College in 2006. Around the same time as The Moral Triangle, um, his book Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique came out from Stanford University Press in 2020, and the book received the Ruth Benedict Prize of the Association for Queer Anthropology. He has been awarded multiple grants and fellowships, including from the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, Open Society Foundations, National Science Foundation, Social Sciences Research Council, Woodrow Wilson National Foundation, Andrew, Mello, Andrew Mellon Foundation, and the Jack Kent Cook Foundation. He is the recipient of a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship and Catherine Davis Fellowship for Peace. He's a Palestinian Quaker and LGBTQ human rights activist. I'm honored to be hosting such brilliant scholars on the podcast, and I must say The Moral Triangle is a very special book for me, not only because it's the first book I chose to do a podcast about, but also because I live in Berlin at the moment, and the stories and the tensions coming out of the book are very familiar and tangible once you live in Berlin and hang out in these circles. So it's wonderful to have you here, Kathy and Syed, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Amon, for having us. It's a, it's a real pleasure um, to talk to you about our book. And um, thank you so much for this very warm introduction. Absolutely. As Kati mentioned, we're so grateful. Thank you so much for hosting us. It's a real honor. It's my pleasure. Um, I'd like to jumpstart our conversation with the question. I was wondering, uh, how did you meet each other and how did this, how did you come to write this book together? Shall I? 
tell the story, say it. <laughs> so uh, it was love at first sight. <laughs> no. So um, this was actually in 2014 during the Gaza war. I had just returned from Jerusalem, returning to Brown and Saed um, was at Brown at the time as a postdoctoral fellow at the Watson Institute and the Center for Middle East Studies organized a panel on uh, on the Gaza war, the consequences of the Gaza war. And um, I attended uh, this panel and uh, Saed was really standing out from a group of uh, senior scholars, all much more senior than him, but he was, to me at least, uh, the star of this panel. And I walked up to him once the discussions were over and introduced myself and we spoke briefly. And then coincidentally, a, a week later, a Jewish friend of Saed and a Palestinian friend of mine uh, who were also friends decided that the two of us had absolutely to get to know each other. And they organized a little tea get together and, and this is when we really first started to to have a serious discussion, and we um, we I think over time became very very fond of each other, very interested in each other's work, even though we come from very different uh, disciplinary backgrounds. I think what we have in common is the interest in um, Israel Palestine, and so we started to read each other's work. Uh, but it was not until um, I came to Berlin in 2016 for a couple of years when I had this idea to work on something together. Anything you'd like to add, Said? No, Kati said it really well. I mean, we, we I'm so grateful for our friendship and our partnership and intellectual collaborations. And we're very, very proud of the book and we're so honored that Amand, you were able to read it, and we very much look forward to the discussion. And then how, I mean, you decided that you'd like to work on to, uh, on something together, but how did the idea of what to do and how to do it came about? So um, I... I um... I discovered that there was a huge Israeli community in Berlin, which I was um, I was very intrigued by this phenomenon. The, the um, media was really full of this. I mean, in, in Israel, there was a lot of media coverage on this phenomenon, also to some extent um, in Germany and internationally. It's really a phenomenon. How of all, why of all places would Israelis pick uh, Berlin to, to settle, to migrate to? And, and then after a while, I also found out about the, the even larger Palestinian community that lives in Berlin. And I shared this with Saed. And so we thought this would be an opportunity for a short paper. And, um, and then once I convinced Saed, uh, it didn't take long for us to get started to, to do the research and then Ultimately, Saed came to, to Berlin to do extensive field study, and it very quickly exploded into a, a book-length manuscript. And a wonderful one than that. Um, and how did you come up with the title, uh, Moral Triangle, and how does it c capture your project? So the main question we ask is, what is the moral responsibility that Germany, both state and society, have towards Israelis and Palestinians in their borders, as well as in Israel-Palestine. And so this question of moral responsibility is an anthropological question. It's also a philosophical question. And it's inspired by the work of Noam Chomsky and his book, The Faithful Triangle, where he thinks about the role of the United States vis-a-vis Israel-Palestine and the triangle that connects Americans, Israelis, and Palestinians. And so as a result, uh, we realized that there wasn't enough work on Germany, given the very important and powerful role that Germany plays. And so it's a twist on the faithful triangle that we use, the moral triangle, given um, our central concern regarding moral responsibility. Um, and um, for the listeners who may not be aware, um, 
can you also maybe talk about the triangle itself like how and why berlin came to be the the space for this triangle uh, to be this visible so this triangle connects germans israelis and palestinians uh, edward said the late palestinian intellectual once said that palestinians are the victims of the victims the refugees of the refugees and so trauma and moral responsibility and political violence and state intervention all of these issues really connect germans israelis and palestinians on a visceral level for over seven decades now but berlin is a central site for that triangle to manifest it's a central site for germans israelis and palestinians to have really meaningful interactions and spaces of both solidarity and anti-solidarity so in our book we provide an ethnographic account of that triangle and how it connects the social fabric of everyday lives of germans israelis and palestinians in berlin and maybe as a side uh, question um i mean during my field work uh, a lot of people told me that berlin is not germany it's much more different it doesn't compare to the rest of the germany did that also come up in your conversations or how does it how did it affect your uh, project looking at germany from the lens of berlin yeah so so berlin is really a very unique case and we make it very clear that our focus is exclusively on the city and i mean first of all for the reasons that you just mentioned berlin is not germany berlin is very different from the rest of germany but it also has this very special role in the context of the holocaust so in terms of today's memory culture and not only the um the um the memory but also the um physical reminders all throughout the city of what happened during the Holocaust, during the Second World War. And so therefore, obviously, Berlin is is a very unique city in terms of its Vergangenheitsbewältigung uh, and um, also rather successful t- tourism industry um, that uh, plays out in a very tangible way. Um, so, uh, but the other reasons why it is so unique is because Berlin attracts such a large um, group of Palestinians and such a large community of Israelis for very different reasons and with very unique histories. Um, but the coming together of these three communities in this relatively small space in this, well, it's not such a small space, but in this one city is is really a very unique case study and a very unique opportunity to engage these three communities between past events and uh, the current situation of migration within Berlin, but also with regard to Germany's relationship with uh, Israel-Palestine. And... um... I mean, for the listeners who may not be aware, I mean, um, maybe a step back. Um, at the beginning of the book and throughout the book, actually, you point at some um, occasions in which anti-Semitism and Zionism are conflated. Um, and for the le- listeners who may not be aware, can you tell a bit more about this conflation of Zionism and anti-Semitism in Germany or in general, I would say? And to me, this conflation usually works together with being very careful of not conflating between racism and anti-Semitism, or there are usually strong arguments against such conflations. How did you see in your research process this interplay of keeping anti-Semitism very spacious, uh, but very special at the same time? You know, Kati and I really are deeply committed to resisting anti-Semitism. Kati comes from a Jewish-German-Israeli background. Um, her family, you know, 90% of her family perished in the Holocaust and her father survived Auschwitz. And for me, it's been really powerful through our friendship to learn about Kati and her family's history and their trauma and their struggles. And also Kati's growing up in Germany and the anti-Semitism that she faced. And so we are very much committed to resisting all forms of oppression, 
including anti-Semitism. And surely anti-Semitism is a form of racism. Uh, in, and in contemporary Germany, we argue that you can understand one form of racism without looking at how it intersects with all forms of racism, including anti-Arab racism, Islamophobia, because often the same forces, these white nationalists, Germans, you know, neo-Nazis, etc., they, they share an underlying hostility towards any form of difference. Uh, and that xenophobia continues to manifest, and that needs to be resisted as well. Unfortunately, on the official level, the German public discourse and the German state often conflate resistance to Israeli oppression and criticism of the Israeli state or Zionism with anti-Semitism. Now, sometimes there is an overlap. Sometimes anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism do overlap. But that's the exception and not the rule. It is possible to be both committed to resistance against anti-Semitism and critical of the Israeli state and its racism and its uh, violence and its oppression. But in contemporary Germany, there's a knee-jerk response. Anytime you critique the Israeli state or Zionism, you're met with this response or suspicion that you're anti-Semitic. And given Germany's special relationship with Israel, that makes it very difficult, especially for the Palestinian community in Berlin, to be able to express their identity and to express their experience and to have space in the public discourse. Yeah, if I may add to this, that um, we very much felt that um, there was a clear relationship between the um, public um, official discourse of um, conflating Israel criticism with uh, anti-Semitism. Um, this was very much an attitude that was shared by most of the Germans we uh, interviewed and we encountered in, in formal and less formal um, contexts. Um, but what we felt was almost like an irony is that um, there, there is this enthusiasm that thanks to the Israeli migration, um, there is a revival of Jewish life in, in Berlin, and Germans are very proud about this. Um, I mean, most Germans, and, and um, really embrace this uh, Israeli community in, in their city. Um, on the other hand, the majority of this Israeli migrant community tends to be left-wing and critical of Israel. And here, suddenly, these, these Israelis are being judged by Germans who perceive, perceive them as anti-Semitic. And that was something that um, a lot of uh, interlocutors shared with us. They found it very disturbing that, um, of all people, it is Germans who criticize them for being anti-Semitic because um, they are critical of their government and um, while being very committed Jews and feeling very comfortable with their um, religious and ethnic background. I mean, this is already uh, a, a huge topic in itself. And yeah, I can continue asking questions about this for hours. But to follow up on that, how did the um, then interplay between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism came out in your field research. I'm curious in what ways your interlocutors talked about it because, and, and what, what is one of the things that this book brilliantly does is to show these things, um, as you said, Said, like these things uh, are perpetrated by uh, similar groups usually in Germany. So um, how did that came up in your research? Well, you know, we didn't shy away from being very honest and being very transparent with our interlocutors about our own positionality and backgrounds. Um, they were aware that Kati is Israeli. They were aware that I'm Palestinian. And we also didn't curate what we found as a result of our interviews and ethnography. So in the book, as I'm sure you're familiar and you saw, we actually narrate examples where people were quite overt in their sentiments that were quite racist. Um, whether anti-Semitic or, you know, anti-Arab racism or anti-Palestinian 
racism. And so we actually referenced different anecdotes in which an individual expressed anti-Semitism very overtly or a person expressed, for instance, Islamophobia very overtly. But I think what was really important was that we withheld judgment and we remained patient, we remained gracious, uh, we supported one another during these very, very difficult moments. And we also kept our eye on the prize that actually in the end, this will make our ethnography and ultimately our book even more rich and even more compelling when we're able to really bring these issues to, to the forefront in a very honest and nuanced manner. And that nuance was also something we were striving towards in the book. Yeah, they're um, bringing, bringing um, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia into dialogue is something um, that is very co um, complicated. And I think a lot of uh, scholars, and but also the public, is, is, uh, tends to be very nervous when these um, phenomena are discussed um, in dialogue. And we're not claiming that they have identical histories and um, identical expressions and, and um, encounters in, in Berlin or uh, Germany more broadly. We do differentiate between the very unique um, expressions of anti-Semitism and the very unique expressions of Islamophobia. Um, but we also try to resist to um, claim that um, these are um, phenomenon of uh, racism that um, have no uh, overlaps and parallels. So we found found it very important to to bring these uh, different phenomena into dialogue. Um, and I mean to go more deep into the book. Uh, in the first chapter, Trauma, Holocaust, Nakba, you refer to Michael Rothberg to talk about moral privileges that may come with trauma, and then in the chapter. You you show how your interlocutors see care and compassion as limited goods that should be earmarked for things that are closer to themselves. Like Martin, a Jewish German, saying, and I'm quoting, I know I should feel bad for Palestinians, but my heart is filled with the trauma of my own people. Um, would you like to elaborate on that point a little bit? Because I think it's fascinating that care and compassion in your interviews then came out as this limited capital or limited good. Well, we're very much inspired by the work of Michael Rothberg, who is a professor of Holocaust studies at UCLA and a really prolific and brilliant scholar. And his theory of multidirectional memory is one that we open the book with and we close the book with and really is at the heart of what we're doing in terms of our theorization. So Michael Rothberg delineates his notion of multidirectional memory and he juxtaposes it with the idea of competitive memory. So competitive memory is a situation in which we feel that acknowledging another people's struggle or suffering or trauma in the public domain will, or private domain will necessarily take away from the acknowledgement of our own struggle or our own positionality or our, our own claim to memory and therefore may take away from compassion being extended towards us. But he argues, in fact, that's not true. In fact, the more space we create for more acknowledgement of trauma and of suffering and of social struggles for all oppressed communities, both historically and in the present, the more space that there will be for all of us, ultimately. So that generosity of spirit, of multidirectional memory, is one that we try to embody in our partnership, in our research collaboration, in the book that we produce, as well as in the voices of a number of our interlocutors who share that commitment to extending compassion from Germany towards Israelis and Palestinians as well. But unfortunately, not everyone shares that commitment and not everyone has that generosity of spirit. Um, and then uh, you also um, intervene with this uh, generic understanding of victims and perpetrators. So you complicate it in the books. Would you like to talk more about this? Yeah, so the general tendency is to identify um, Germans as the perpetrators. And um, at least in the German context, it is usually the Jews, which is then extrapolated to include the Israelis as the victims. Um, but 
very quickly, we obviously um, realized as we interviewed um, our different community members um, that they're very different views and um, that the situation is much more complex. Uh, Germans can sometimes be, be victims. Um, Israelis can be victims, but they can, um, for many, they are the pe perpetrators and vice versa. For some, Palestinians are the perpetrators. Um, for others, they are the victims. And we also um, understood that sometimes um, one individual or one community can have certain aspects of a victim and a per perpetrator at the same time. So we try to break a little bit these, these stereotypical categorizations of uh, associating one um, community as a monolithic entity with either victimhood or um, um, being um, perpetrators. And then do you find um, the terms victim and perpetrator uh, useful analytic categories in general? Um, well, we actually um, try to question the validity of these uh, terms and um, some of our interlocutors were actually not so happy because it as if reinforces uh, certain stereotypes. Uh, but we decided to use these um, um, terms because um, the literature that deals with these communities um, uses these terms um, uh, repeatedly. Um, and I mean, maybe it's a difficult question, and of course we don't maybe have the time to parse out details, but I was very interested in this idea of restorative justice that you discuss in the Moral Triangle chapter. Could you talk a bit more about that? And maybe another question then would be, how do you envision a restorative justice that includes Germans, Israelis, and Palestinians? You know, often re restorative justice uh, is juxtaposed with uh, the idea of retributive justice, you know, and especially in the U.S. context, we're so used to the legal system and system of accountability being so punitive, such an emphasis on retribution of, uh, But restorative justice is meant to be much more broad. It's supposed to include the social uh, ecosystem. It's supposed to be victim-focused. It's supposed to include everyone. And it's supposed to focus not just on accountability, but also ultimately healing on an individual and on a collective level. And so one of our main findings in the book is that as we, as we think, we look at this moral triangle, we see that on the German-Israeli side of the triangle, There are all of these efforts towards restorative justice, and those are incredibly inspiring. Also on the Israeli-Palestinian side of the triangle, there are also tremendous efforts in Berlin today, in the present, towards restorative justice. But it's actually the German-Palestinian side of the triangle where we see a dearth of efforts towards restorative justice. Some are in the private sphere, the civil society sphere, but they have a long way to go in terms of acknowledgement, recognition, in terms of translating to the public sphere or into policy or really into meaningful practice. And so what we hope is that we will see more efforts towards uh, restorative justice between Germans and Israelis, uh, sorry, Germans and Palestinians as well. Um, and as Germany embraces more of a democratic model, right, if it truly lives into its democracy, and truly listens to the voices of its diverse population, of its own grassroots movements and civil society forces, it will see that more and more young Germans and other Germans are calling for a different kind of engagement with the question of Palestine and with the Palestinian population in Germany's borders in the present. So we hope that German policymakers and state officials will open their hearts more to this discourse. And did you did you come across any uh, good examples of uh, restorative justice attempts at restorative justice between uh, Germans and Palestinians while you were in Germany? Yeah, I do think that um, um, there are some um, efforts on um, on the part of uh, German the German political establishment. I mean, there are a lot of uh, foundations that. 
um, establish uh, headquarters in the Palestinian territories in the West Bank and in Gaza. There's a lot of effort um, invested in humanitarian aid. So there is definitely that on, on, on the official side. And we felt that there was even more interest um, in civil society at grassroots level. There, there are a lot of Germans who are actually critical of their government for for often censoring uh, Palestinian populations in Germany and um, Berlin more specifically. And um, so we, we felt that a lot of individuals and, and uh, organizations of Germans are actually much more understanding of um, the plight that the Palestinians have suffered and continue to suffer. Um, and I mean, another question that came to mind, and of course you also mentioned this in the book, there are multiple affiliations of the people you interviewed besides being German, Israeli or Palestine. And one axis of it is definitely sexuality and I am also, uh, as I, that's the topic I'm working on as well, I wanted to dive in. Um, for instance, I mean, I was in the, at the 2016 Christopher Street Day March, which is the name of the main Pride March in Berlin. And I saw how, how Palestinian and pro-Palestinian activists were violently silenced when they were protesting the pinkwashing of Israel at the event and what was very striking to me that uh, it was the other queer people marching alongside them who started hitting the activists with their hand uh, handheld rally sticks which carried banners calling for love and equality um, and a couple of years ago and you mentioned this in the book as well in an alternative pride march called the radical queer march the organizers called the police against the participation of the palestinian bloc which actually gave birth to, form, to the formation of an amazing activist group called uh, Queers Against Racism and Colonialism and a separate Pride March organized by them. So in the midst of all these peculiarities and tensions, I'd like to also hear more about how your interlocutors talked about the effects of homonationalism and pinkwashing in Germany. And for those of you who are not familiar, homonationalism is a term coined by Jasbir Poir and it refers to the deployment of LGBTQI rights discourse for racist ends, to say the least. And in the context of Palestine-Israel, pinkwashing is a term activists and academics use more often. And Syed, you wrote a whole book about this, so I will leave the intricacies of it to you. Uh, how do you think these tensions play out in Germany? Well, you know, Kati and I are very committed uh, to gender and sexuality studies as well. This is one of our, our, our passions. Uh, Kati is working on an exciting new book. I just recently finished reading a draft of the manuscript on Jewish women that, that covers an incredible array of time and looks at the role of women in Jewish society. And I'm also, you know, a, a, a feminist, a queer activist. Uh, and so in during our fieldwork, these issues of this triangle, Germans, Israelis, Palestinians, and how it intersects with questions of gender and sexuality really did come up in really salient ways. Uh, it doesn't end up becoming the major thrust or theme of our book. Um, it actually warrants its own book, to be honest. There's enough material and enough fascinating issues, as you just alluded to, Armand, that that could become its own book. So, for example, Hila Amit is someone that we met during our fieldwork, and she's an amazing, uh, very progressive, uh, anti-Zionist Jewish-Israeli who is the, lives in Berlin now. She's been living in Berlin for years, and very progressive, like so many Israelis in Berlin who are young and progressive, and many of them are queer. And she wrote this amazing book called A Queer Way Out, where she actually looks specifically at queer Israelis who are progressive, many of whom are progressive, who then moved to Berlin and established new lives in Germany, which is totally fascinating. So we met a lot of those folks while we were in the field. Um, also, there are, you know, obviously Palestinians in Germany who identify as LGBTQ or feminist and queer allies, but also there are Germans who identify in this, in this manner as well. What's very particular about Berlin is given this special relationship that Germany has with Israel, what we see globally on the progressive left, which is 
solidarity with Palestine, the way that it's so salient, it's common sense, it's been integrated into all axes of struggle. Germany is a case in which you have people across the political spectrum, right, center, as well as left. There are plenty of people on the left who are what we would call progressive, except for Palestine, you know, so they get it on all human rights issues, but on the question of Palestine, they fear or they may be hostile to any kind of expression of solidarity with the Palestinian human rights movement. And so it is disheartening to see that even within the mainstream LGBTQ spaces and circles in Berlin and the present, there could be this racism towards Palestinians that, that manifests in sometimes these violent ways. And this is very, very, very concerning. Um, but I, I do think, and we allude to this very briefly, that as Berlin is more and more cosmopolitan and as people go to Berlin from across the world, across the Middle East, from across Europe, queer folks are immigrating to the country. Queer folks are visiting the country from all over the world and they're bringing with them these critiques of homonationalism and of pinkwashing. And more and more LGBTQ Germans in Berlin are having to grapple with these questions and are being confronted with these questions. It's creating a kind of cognitive dissonance, but more and more of them are actually realizing that to embrace a truly feminist, queer, progressive politics, uh, Palestine solidarity is a major pillar of that. So if I can add to this that, um, yes, as Saed said, it, it, uh, we are interested in these issues and, um, but, and, and work, um, have various research projects on gender and sexuality, but it was not our main focus when we wrote this, uh, this book. Um, I mean, there are it, there is this irony of uh, Berlin being one of those uh, centers of uh, uh, progressive uh, movements in in the context of uh, queer lives. When we think of um, um, Hirschfeld, for, Magnus Hirschfeld, for example, and um, uh, the period of uh, the Weimar Republic, and then on the other extreme, we have. Um, the era of the Holocaust, when not only Jews, but uh, also queer populations, homosexual, specifically homosexual men, um, were, were murdered. And uh, today, um, jumping a few decades ahead again, um, Berlin is one of the um, queer... Um, centers in, in the world. It's a, it's a very, there is a very vibrant um, queer and, and LGBTQ plus community, um, something that we personally enjoyed very much. Uh, but coming back to our book, there is actually a, a passage in Saed's uh, postscript that I would um, like to to refer to, which each time I read it, it, it makes me shiver or um, have alarms, uh, um, tears in my eyes, uh, which is that he felt this contradiction that on the one hand, he feels this um, his body and him as a person, him as a queer person being fully embraced in Berlin like nowhere else in the world, even more so than San Francisco or Provincetown or other um, major queer centers. And um, the irony is that he does not feel embraced. He feels actually rejected and censored as a Palestinian. So it's, it's this um, very non-intuitive situation where we have all of these extremes um yeah i there's no I, I i'm not even going to comment on this it's yeah um i mean this is also another good moment to call for people to actually read the book and it's full of these uh, intimate accounts which are also full of contradictions and yeah the book doesn't really give a clear-cut answer to anything but showing actually how um, 
all these lives, um, including yours, but also your interlocutors are filled with these uh, intimate contradictions. Um, and what were some of the surprising things that uh, came out of your interviews? Some of the things that you didn't expect um, or some of the things that shocked you? Well, for me, uh, frankly, it's um, having had a life in Germany, growing up in Germany, and being very familiar with the Jewish-German community, but also being very familiar with um, Israeli society, as in um, I, I became an Israeli citizen uh, at the age of 21 and have lived in Israel for 10 years and uh, worked in Israel for over three decades now. And so I'm, I'm very much connected to both the German Jewish community and uh, the Israeli uh, society. And so um, what, what really shocked me is uh, the level of um, reluctance to criticize Israeli politics among the German Jewish community and this um, contradiction between supporting everything that has to do with Israel, blindly so, because um, very few German Jews are actually well informed about Israeli politics, but there is this blind support of the government and, and the country, and also this conflation of if you criticize Israeli politics, you, you're you automatically anti-Semitic. Um, and then there is this Israeli community that lives in Berlin, but they're completely separate. Rather than showing interest and embracing what the Jewish community in Germany claims to love, um, there is absolutely or very, very, very little overlap between these two communities, the German Jewish community and the Israeli community. Um, and um, so, yeah, so this is something that that was very strange for me to discover. And, I would like to and maybe also the fact that German Jews very much join uh, the view of many Germans who think that if you criticize Israeli politics, you're an anti-Semite, that this is something German Jews and Germans um, have, have in common. And um, it really puts the Israeli community that has chosen to live in Berlin temporarily or long-term into a very strange place. And I obviously identified more with this lefty Israeli community who feels um, shocked when when I'm being, I mean, it never happened to me, but I always tell Saed, if this will ever happen to me, that someone will refer to me as an anti-Semite because I criticize Israeli politics, I will... I don't know what I will do, but um, I feel like I'm totally committed to my Jewish roots, to my Jewish history, to um, to everything that relates to to Judaism. Really, I mean, it's my my field of study, and I yeah, I'm a very committed and informed Jew. I was surprised by many things. Um, so one disheartening phenomenon that really disheartened me was the level of censorship in, in Germany and including in Berlin and the level, the institutionalization of censorship of Palestinian and pro-Palestinian voices. I was just astonished by the extent to which there are organized, powerful efforts to try to just completely eradicate these voices from the public sphere uh, and in public spaces in Berlin. This took me by surprise, given the democratic and cosmopolitan context that you would otherwise expect in such a city. Uh, so that that really was disheartening. At the same time, I was really moved and, and deeply touched by the points of intersection that Berlin makes possible between Israelis and Palestinians 
in the city. And that's why Tati and I devoted a whole chapter called Points of Intersection, where we actually provide examples of those spaces. It just truly warmed my heart. And it made me realize that there are spaces that Berlin makes possible in a kind of post-Zionist context that we could envision one day for Israel-Palestine. There are spaces that are not possible in Israel-Palestine, given the apartheid, given the military occupation, given the system of oppression that exists back home, but that is actually, uh, you know, you can not only imagine it in Berlin, but actualize it in Berlin. And so, ironically, Berlin sort of gave me a vision for what the future of Israel-Palestine could look like one day when the system of oppression comes to an end. And yeah, before we close, I also wanted to ask you um, about the your disciplinary differences and the collaborative writing process. Uh, Kati, you're an archaeologist, and Said, you're a sociocultural anthropologist. How did you bridge these differences? And more than that, maybe also, um, how was it writing together? What was the process like? And I'd like to also add, it's such a beautifully written book that makes a very complex issue very accessible to general publics, I would say. So how did you come to that point in your writing? So first of all, I think it was our friendship that was a good basis. And I think also our political views were not only compatible, but I would say identical. We never had any political disagreement. I think sometimes one or the other had a more um, complex understanding of certain issues, and we learned a lot from each other throughout the process. I definitely learned uh, anthropological methods and methods of how to interview um, individuals um, from Saed, and he was a great teacher. I, I really appreciated his his patience. Um, I I would hope that I contributed in in other dimensions. I I um, worked more on the um, historical tools that contextualize many of the encounters and situations that we described. And um, I think we also um, complemented each other uh, linguistically. Most of the interviews were conducted in English. A lot of the literature is written in English, but there were some interviews uh, where I benefited and, and the interviewees benefited from the fact that um, I could talk to them either in German or in Hebrew and under other interviewees who could uh, speak in Arabic with Saed. And the same is true for, for the literature. Some of the literature that uh, we reference and that we read um, was in Hebrew or in Arabic um, and so, or German. And so um, we divided up um, some of these tasks um, I, I, it, it was actually very natural. Maybe the one point where, where there was some tension is that we have very different working habits. And um, so there, this was maybe the only point where there was some conflict or tension along the way, but ultimately with some distance, we actually realized that even in this regard, we very much benefited from each other. Saed has this style of writing very quickly a first draft and just um, brainstorming and putting it all on paper. And I will, um, it will take me um, an eternity to finish a sentence and I will not go to the second sentence unless the first sentence is perfect. And so I at times felt really, really pushed to, but um, in the end it was very good because um, we produced our first draft, book draft very, very quickly. And then um, we went over it numerous times and polished the text. And, and it was so successful that uh, we ended up um, working together on um, several other projects. In the meantime, we're, we finished co-editing uh, um, a volume on um, queer Palestinian and Israeli film, and we have written a bunch of articles, so we work really well together. 
I really agree with everything Kati said, and I, I appreciate everything you just said, Kati. Thank you. And Armand, thank you also for your very kind words and for your very compelling question. I'll just add that it, it, as a sociocultural anthropologist, I realize that so much of our work is so lonely, you know, and so individualistic. And it's in, in some ways imperialist. We sort of claim our territory and then, you know, we, we, you know, we, we leave our stamp and our mark behind, you know, et cetera. But embracing this model of co-authorship and collaboration with another scholar was incredibly rewarding and enriching and fulfilling. Obviously, having a shared friendship, as Kati mentioned, as well as shared ideological um, commitments and political and ethical commitments helped facilitate that. But the disciplinary question that you raised is also amazing because it made me appreciate archaeology and visual culture and the work that Kati does, although some of it is, you know, is in an ancient context or a very, very different historical context, I saw that the sensibility that Kati brings as an archaeologist was invaluable to actually carrying out our ethnography, because what we did was that we went to film festivals and we visited people's homes and met in cafes and we traversed the entire city and the entire city's landscape. We mapped out neighborhoods, we mapped out demographics. Um, it was truly exciting, such an adventure to explore the city in this way, but to do so with an archaeologist who's such a perfectionist and committed to not leaving a single stone unturned and wants to understand the full landscape on a macro level and a micro level, Kati has this amazing comprehensive bird's eye view, but then is able to dig very, very, very deeply in each particular very local and intimate context. I thought that that enriched our ethnography so much more and it made it so much more exciting and as a result comprehensive. I, I really stand um, behind our book and the power of our book and the comprehensive nature of our book. I think we were really able to capture so much in just one manuscript. So I'm so grateful for all of our work together and thank you for having us on your podcast. It really was an honor. Oh, I mean, on that note, thank you both so much for joining us. And as we are closing, I'd like to repeat, uh, we had the wonderful opportunity to talk to uh, Katharina Galore and Saed Achan on their book, The Moral Triangle, Germans, Israelis, Palestinians, that was published in 2020 by Duke University Press. And this is the Anthropology Channel of the New Books Network. And I'm your host, Armand Gildas, looking forward to the next episode.